designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tails behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here, so let's get into it. Welcome back. So this episode features a fun conversation between me and the amazing April Drake. April is also a licensed black female architect. We talk about her architecture journey, as well as the importance of networking to create a supportive community for your personal and professional growth. Throughout the episode, we do fall in a little bit to architecture jargon. So just to give you a heads up, when we're talking about NCARB, that is the National Council of Architecture Review Boards. And and NCARB is a nonprofit that's made up of architectural licensing boards of the 55 U.S. states and territories. Um, so NCARB also puts together the requirements that aspiring architects have to meet to be able to become licensed. And so it's the, the ARE, which is the Architecture Registration Examination, as well as NCARB puts together guidance on the AXP, which is the Architectural Experience Program. We also talk a little bit about NAB, and NAB is the National Architectural Accrediting Board, and they're the ones that make sure that the universities that have architectural degrees keep their accreditation. And then finally, we talk about the AIA, which is the American Institute of Architects. So this will be a little bit of architecture jargon soup, so apologies for that, but just wanted to give you a little bit of a primer before the episode started. Uh, So we get into a little bit of the inner workings of the architecture profession and licensing and April's experience and impact being involved in various organizations. There are lots of great links in the show notes, so be sure to click there if you're curious about any of the organizations. Additionally, uh, we, al- we also name drop Melissa a couple times, and when, we- when we're referring to Melissa, we mean Melissa Daniels, who is also an aspiring architect and has a podcast called Arches Polly. Uh, a link to her podcast is also in the show notes. 
Also, as a reminder, the Black Women in Architecture brunch is coming up next weekend, October 24th. There's a link to that event in the show notes as well if you are interested in participating. So let me get into April's bio so you can hear just how amazing she is. So April Drake is a senior project architect with HDR in Arlington, Virginia, focusing on complex government facilities. She's a native of Hampton Roads, Virginia, and received her Bachelor of Architecture from Hampton University. She has 15 years of education, government, and commercial project experience, and leads multidisciplinary teams through all stages of design. As you'll hear in the episode, she's also especially passionate about her mentorship role and promoting the growth of women and minorities in architecture and the allied fields. She was one of the first 400 African-American licensed women in the country. And she's aware of the leadership and encouragement that is necessary to guide women from graduation to licensure. She's been an active member in the American Institute of Architects and a committee volunteer for NCARB. And after serving a few years on the board of directors, she is now the 2021 treasurer for the AIA Northern Virginia chapter. She's been volunteering with NCARB since 2014 and is on a number of task forces developing the new ARE 5.0 exam. She's also a past chair of the AIA NOVA Women in Architecture Committee, and that committee champions the advancement of women in the profession throughout Northern Virginia, D.C., and Maryland. April also dedicates her efforts to creating events geared towards introducing young girls to architecture, and in 2015, she started a STEM event for local Girl Scout troops. Through a series of both collaborative and individual hands-on activities, each Girl Scout is able to explore aspects of architecture while also earning a STEM patch for their vest. In November 2018, April was the local keynote speaker in D.C. for the AIA Leadership Institute, speaking about the missing middle, and she highlighted the challenges faced by mid-career professionals. And in 2019, she was one of the AIA Virginia Emerging Professional Award recipients. April is a good friend and understands the journey in a way that not many people can. So I'm very excited for you to get to listen in on this fun conversation with me and April Drake couple more things before we get into the show. So as you'll hear, April is from the 757, which is an area code in southeastern Virginia. And so I wanted to highlight a building from that area code. And since I'm doing some work down in Newport News, I wanted to highlight the Whitaker Memorial Hospital. The Whitaker Memorial Hospital was founded in 1908 to serve the African-American population of Newport News. And the hospital was built by African-American physicians and designed by African-American architects. And it's evolved over the years, and it actually ended up closing in 1985. It's since been revitalized and adaptively reused to be turned into apartments. So I thought it was a super interesting way to breathe new life into the hospital. So I'll put some links into the show notes so you can see that building and learn a little bit more about that history. This week's episode is sponsored by Smart Chief Architects. Smart Chief Architects is a course that I created to help architects better manage their small practices. And you can find out more information at www.smartsheetforarchitects.com. And if you enter in offer code TRPODCAST, as in Tangible Remnants Podcast, then you can get 20% off any purchase on any of the courses. And without further ado, let's get into the show. So why don't we start with what drew you to architecture and a little bit of your origin story in the field? Ooh, what drew me to architecture? Mm -hmm. I've been drawn to architecture really since I was younger. I always knew I wanted to draw something. 
So I liked fashion design, but then I couldn't draw well enough for that. And then I really loved interior design. And then I just, I remember actually driving down the street one day in the backseat of the car and just looking up at a building and thinking to myself, well, why interior design and why not the entire building? Mm-hmm. And so from that point on, I was kind of stuck with architecture. And then I actually had um, opportunity to go to technical school while I was in high school. So I left high school half a day and went to technical school where we did drafting and design, where I learned AutoCAD, things like that. So I did that for two years, junior year and senior year. And from there, I was sold. And then I applied to only schools that have architecture programs for the most part at that point. Yeah, at that time. Then once you were in the field, or once you were in uh, architecture undergrad, did it still feel like, yep, this is what I want to do? Or, or what was that experience like in Hampton? I mean, I mean, there's two different things, right? Because I went to an HBCU. So, I mean, those are two different experiences. So, being at Hampton or being at any HBCU, I mean, I grew up in, in uh, Hampton Roads, which is also right down the street from Norfolk State. So, I grew up my entire life around HBCU. So, those are two different questions about my experience at Hampton versus my experience in in architecture, um, uh-huh, say more. going into the architecture, yeah. <laughs> going into the architecture program was very different than I felt like the rest of the campus. You know, at that time that I was there, we didn't have, we had some professors, but not all of our professors looked like the demographics of you know people on campus. And so that was very different to be in a program where it wasn't always as nurturing as you probably thought it should be going to an HBCU and also wanting to, you know, nurture African-Americans and trying to get those numbers up um, as far as like the number of licensed architects in the, in the field. I understand now there's a little bit more to it. You know, maybe not everybody is really meant to be in architecture. Mm-hmm. And in the traditional sense, I think that there are so many different paths that while maybe someone may not be fit for design, I think that someone may be fit for project management. I think there's just so many different routes that someone can go down. So to say at 18, 19, that making that decision for someone they shouldn't be in the field is is probably a little harsh um, at that time. But so I, I had my issues going into architecture in the very beginning. I didn't like how long we worked, I guess you can say. We had that studio culture of all-nighters. You know, I I looked at some of the professors that we had, and as a woman at that time, I remember thinking, well, there are not that many of us. And then I remember looking at some of the personal lives of some of our professors and thinking to myself, well, is it because of architecture that they, you know, saying that they do or don't have personal lives? Some of them were married. Some of them weren't. Some of them had kids. Some of them didn't. And I always remember thinking, like, what, what, what is it about this field that's driving that, mm-hmm. you know, aspect of our, our lives and, in architecture? So I did survive the five-year program. I did graduate on time, but I did have my worries about what this life would be like after moving on from architecture. I enjoyed it. Um, I think that's the sad part about it. Um, while I had my worries, I can't see myself really doing anything else. Um, the next best thing would be accounting because I do love math and I, I do love 
numbers and state planning and different aspects of that part of, of math, but otherwise I can't see myself doing too much else. So yeah. Yeah. I empathize completely where it's like the culture of the all nighters and all that. And even just the being in the profession, even when I meet developers and I know they're making hundreds of thousands of dollars more than we are. It's still one of those things. Mm -hmm. Architecture still, uh, there's something about it. I hear you. Um, so then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then once you graduated, you did make the decision to pursue getting licensed. And then when you came out of school, were you working at big firms or what was your professional journey after you got out of school? So um, I actually had started doing internships while I was in school. I actually had a, a really good connection. My godmother worked as office manager for a small uh, minority firm named Livers Group Architects in Norfolk, Virginia. And they did a lot of higher education, churches. Um, they actually did a lot of buildings on Hampton campus. Mm-hmm. And so I interned for them early on and then uh, eventually went to go work for them for a few years um, after graduation. But right after graduation, some people do or don't know that I actually went to UNCG for three semesters to try to do a master's of science in interior architecture. And I say try because I only made it three semesters, but that was really interested in the in interior architecture and interior, and not just interior design, but the actual just the interior architecture of a space and how that space makes you feel and how you move through that space. And that's actually what I did my thesis on. So then I ended up going to grad school for, for that for a little while. But grad school was a lot different than undergrad. I had more responsibilities. I was off campus. I had a job. I had, you know, responsibilities. I had a car note. I had rent things of, of that nature. And, you know, my body just wasn't, a, I don't think equipped for it anymore. Right. And so I had to make the hard decision that it was me and my health. Cause my, I, I get migraines. And so my migraines had just skyrocketed at getting one almost every day. So I had to make the hard decision to, to leave school early right. um, or go back home, which was back to Hampton Roads. And so from there, I went back to Livers Group where I had interned and um, started working with them full time. And so that was all of the people in lives and stuff, like one person were all Hampton grads. And that was where I really, truly felt I got my footing as, a, as an architect. I got a really good foundation because it was a small firm. So it was 14 people, including the office manager, including all the principals, owners, everyone. It's only 14 of us. And it gave me the space to be able to ask what some people may consider that those stupid questions. You know, I could just outright ask, ask, like I'm looking at a detail, like, okay, well, why is this footing deeper than this footing? Like, is it, is this real or did someone mess this detail up? Because, I mean, we were in AutoCAD, so it wasn't as if we were in Revit and someone had right. modeled that or we had gotten that model from the structural engineer. I mean, so it could have easily been a line that, you know, right. moved or got adjusted along the way. Um, but it gave me the space to, to ask those questions. I did CA all the time. So not only did I get a chance to do construction documents, uh, but I also got a chance to see those projects come to life to get submittals, That's to awesome. find my mistakes in the submittals, and then <laughs> fix my mistakes in the field, and then learn from them on the on the next project. So I really do appreciate that experience because it was 
um, probably the best experience for me, I believe, just being at that small firm. Yeah, and the impact of being able to do CA and or uh, construction administration and really get in to see how the building goes together is really mm-hmm. invaluable for so many architects. And I know that, unfortunately, there's some architects who feel like they're like above CA. I'm like, but why? That's why your details are always wrong. Like, because <laughs> <so, laughs> you're designing something you don't know. I mean, it's so it's so true. I mean, you know, back then this was early 2000, so internet was was just starting to like boom with all the different vendor books um, online. So we were still getting books in the office back then. And so I was always taught like, you're not detailing if you don't have all the books around you. (laughs) So if you don't have all the vendor books around you on that detail page, you know, you're, you're not detailing, you're not doing construction documents, but then you learned the other thing you needed was if you had a old submittal, yeah. that's the best thing to go get because that's truly how it's going to get put together um, even more so than sometimes these details you have from the different yep. vendors. Yep. So especially casework and, and, you know, custom mill work and things like that, like going to get those submittals are, that's some of the best resources you could ever have. Yeah, absolutely. And so then, so I guess we met a while ago. Mm, 2012 is when I moved like that, up. 12, 13. Move up here. Uh, almost yeah. a decade. Yep, yeah, somewhere in there. And so, um, oh, man, why, why do you have to say it? Why did you have to say it like that? I mean, I was just fine saying 2012. Um, uh-huh. That was a decade ago? Oh. It's about, right? Okay. It's wild. It's wild. And so I remember just being so excited to meet you, not only because, you know, there's just not that many... Um, there's not that many black women architects. There's also not that many tall black women architects. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but then um, I also just remember like how focused you were on um, the different boards. So even your involvement with NCARB and the AIA Women in Architecture. I've just always been impressed that you've been connecting with the various organizations that are really making decisions for the profession. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you got involved with those organizations. Ooh, I moved up here in 2012, June, finally, once the recession was starting to break. And was after graduation, stayed at home. And so I wasn't very involved in different organizations back at home. I tried, but I really didn't feel like I, I fit in for one reason or, or another. Not because they weren't always welcoming. I just didn't feel like I had found a place. And when I moved up here, I really made an effort to try to network more and try to find some more people to connect with in the profession. So I moved up here and was uh, working in Old Town and decided to go to AIA Northern Virginia Chapter House for their open house. At that time, I don't even think I was a, a member yet because I wasn't, I wasn't licensed and I, I wasn't an associate AIA member prior to being licensed. So I remember going and I met a few women. I met Joanne Murray and she was at that time women in architecture chair and she was just so welcoming, like, Hey, you know, I'm on the women in architecture um, committee. I'm the chair. She was just like, you know, she gave me her information. She said, you should just come, you know, to our, our next meeting. And I did. And when I went to, to the meeting is when I met uh, Melissa. Um, and then I also met uh, Catherine Prigmore. And then there were a few other women there as well. But I just remember it was probably my second or third meeting. 
I remember they started telling these stories, Joanne and Kathy, about when they were younger and how they worked together and things that they had accomplished. And I just thought to myself, I can't believe I ended up in a room with these women. And, you know, and at that time, I didn't realize Kathy was like number 20 on the list of of, of African-American licensed black women in the country, you know, so, right. you know, uh, right. in the country. I didn't realize she was number 20. Right. And I'm sitting in this room and I'm just like, I don't, how did I get here? And I'm just so grateful for the experience of being, you know, in this room with them. And so from that moment moving forward, it just became important to me to just continue to put myself out there to continue to network and then also realizing what they do. How could I, you know, what did I need to do or how could I do something that was just as impactful? So it just went out of control <laughs> from, from there for, for good or for bad. Um, so from women in architecture, I eventually became chair of the women in architecture committee for a year and a half. So Joanne and Kathy, and Melissa went um, went on to do the Women's uh, Leadership Summit, and a few other women joined them as well. And so that left a hole with the Women in Architecture Committee. And so I I filled that behind Joanne um, for a couple of years, and then passed the baton on to to the next person. So then from there I went to AIA Northern Virginia Board of Directors, and then also NCARB. Again, hanging out with Melissa. Going to um, my first AIA convention, I ended up meeting Karen, and Karen was uh, volunteering for NCARB at that time. And so I think that was the year that she got the Young Architects Award, and she says, hey, you want to volunteer with NCARB? And I'm like, um, okay, like, sure. Right. And I end up getting in, uh, volunteering for NCARB at that time where they are making the transition from 4.0 to 5.0. But the one thing I realized over there was that there wasn't very many of us, um, men or women, African-Americans. And I realized like, oh, this is the place where the testing is happening. Like this right. is the place where, you know, they're putting together the test. They're making the test questions. They're determining the flow. They're determining all these different things. And I'm like, this is the test that I just, at that time, just finished taking to become an architect. And I was like, oh, but I need to stay over here. And so that was, that's become one of my like kind of goals is to continue to stay involved with NCARB and, and everything that they do um, because, you know, they are one of the steps along the way for everyone and becoming licensed and just having that representation of not only being a woman, but being a black woman, but then also a person that attended a HBCU because, you know, that, those are things that come into play when we're talking about different things and just making sure when we're talking about equity, we're talking about diversity, all those different things come into play when we're talking about NCARB and, you know, all the different architecture schools are not always created equal. You know, yes, we're all NAV accredited, but we're all NAV accredited in different ways. And so, I mean, there's a known fact that not every school goes after the same train of thought when it comes to how they're leading and guiding the next generation of architects. And so, you know, just having to be that voice in that community of, of architects from around the country, because that's, you know, West Coast is different than East Coast is different than Midwest. We all bring together these different trains of thought and and make it work. And it's been very enlightening for me to listen to others and, and see what they're thinking. 
So I've, I've really enjoyed that one. Yeah. And I love that you're on the board and bringing that voice to NCARB because I hadn't really thought about the fact of how NCARB actually works. I was like, oh, right. There's people behind that organization. And yes. I, I mean, it, yeah. it is. I, would, I One day I hope to be on the board of NCARB. Right now I'm just a volunteer mm-hmm. um, and you can volunteer for different things. But yeah, one day maybe you'll see me on the board, but so then um when you moved to the area is that when you took the job at now that you're up here working at a bigger firm have you found that compares to working at a smaller firm um moving up here and and finding my footing in first the larger city and then that turned into the larger firm um there are so many different differences but then also similarities so at home, I worked at a firm that was 14 people. Now I work at a firm where we've had upwards of, in our office, 140 people, I think, at one time. But even though I didn't know majority of the people in the office, I still only work with maybe 14 people. Um, so it still has that same small firm feeling because I'm still only working with certain principals, PMs. Mm-hmm. coordinators, architects, and things of that nature. I may speak to more people coming and going from my desk or coming and going from the office, but as far as my everyday work life is still with a small group um, of, of people. Gotcha. But my teams are now much larger. So even though I may, as far as on the architecture team, interact with only a few people, I have structural engineering that's in maybe our office, but then so many different consultants that I didn't have before that are sometimes all over the country coordinate with. So sometimes I'm sending emails and there are 60 plus people on the email because everyone has their piece on the project, whether it's commissioning or controls. And, um, you know, in addition to mechanical and electrical and plumbing and all those disciplines you're used to. So it's very different, but then very much the same as far as the interaction goes. But I do like the large firm, I guess. Mm-hmm. I've gotten used to it now. In some ways, I like that in a small firm, you can't really hide. There's nowhere to hide. I mean, there's only four, 14 people. Mm-hmm. But I do like that there are cer- some days, not very many, some days I can go in and I can I can hide a little bit. I can get my headphones on and sit at my desk and, and get some right. work done. I can, I can hide a, a little bit more than I can in a, in a small firm. Yeah. I concur. <laughs> Being able <laughs> to, have, you know, not be the bottleneck and not be like the sole decision maker or have so many things for that particular day, depending on you. It's, I like that for bigger firms. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, trying not to be that bottleneck, right? right. The, even in a even in a large firm or a large project team, people always try to come to you for the decision making. And my thing is to try to empower other people to make decisions. Absolutely, decision <laughs> fatigue is so real. <laughs> and then it's also <laughs> yeah. realizing that um, it can't all be just on on me. Or you know, we need to spread this out. Oh no, yeah, <laughs> right. And so I try to get people to make decisions while I'm there, so mm-hmm. that they're able to make decisions when I'm not there. Because if I'm on vacation, you can't wait for me to get back. Yeah, you exactly. need to make a decision. Exactly. And if it's the wrong decision, we'll fix it when I we'll fix it when I get back. But you <laughs> at least have to make you at least have to make one. And you have to have a reason behind why you made that 
right. decisions. So sometimes people come to me and ask me, I'm like, okay, I know what I think, but what do you think? Mm-hmm. And I get them to, you know, talk through what they think. And, I, and then if they tell me what I am thinking, I say, well, I agree with you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> go, like, right. go. Uh, what about the times when you disagree with them? How do you guide them? <laughs> if I disagree with them, I just explain to them my thought process if I and I may have a piece of information that they don't have gotcha and so a lot of times I have a piece of information they don't have or maybe they haven't thought about and that's what has and then once we talk about that then they normally will change their answer to to match with with mine sometimes I'll get an email that they don't know about that is off on the side, someone will email me and say X, Y, Z, and then they will come to me with this. And I know I just got this email and they say, well, I think we go this way. And I say, well, mechanical says this. So that right. changes everything. So now we have to go the opposite. So yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. being that the connection, the problem solver and being able to see multiple vantage points, particularly in the profession on the project, it's huge. Cause there's so many, I mean, yeah. so many different consultants and decisions that have to be made to make these buildings come together uh, in a way that's going to make sense in CA. <laughs> oh, CA. <laughs> right, exactly. Any any tips you'd want to give to younger students uh, pursuing the field, particularly women of color who are in, looking at getting into architecture? I think the advice I would give is don't get discouraged by what you may see or don't see. You know, when you go into the offices, you know, right now there are only five, a little bit over 500 of us that are licensed. So we may not be in in every office that you go into, but we do exist. And so I would advise them to seek out different organizations and get involved, you know, whether that's NOMA, AIA, and once they become licensed, um, NCARB, um, there are also different ways you can be involved with NCARB prior to being licensed as well. But I would just advise them to seek out different ways of connecting with people in their area. So I know that if I had not done that, I wouldn't have met you. I wouldn't have met Melissa. I wouldn't have met probably a good number of the licensed um, Black (laughs) architects (laughs) in the country. I mean, I can roll down a a good number of of us um, and a good number of us that I know whose phone numbers are in my phone, who I can call on, who I can seek advice from, you know, times that I've switched jobs, I've, you know, I've texted the network and said, what do you guys know about this, this firm? And so I would advise them to try to create those circles for themselves. And they're not necessarily always going to be those that you went to school with. I mean, I didn't go to school with, with any of you all. I have a completely different circle of, you know, a group of women that I went to school with and every single one of us are in the field in a different way. None of them are licensed or practice architecture in a traditional way. They all practice architecture in um, an adjacent, um, non-traditional way, but they're using that architecture degree. So you're going to continue to evolve. Some of you all are going to take different paths and it's about trying to stay connected, but also continue to find your group of people as you evolve into your circle, into your path within this industry. So put yourself out there. I am the introvert of the group. I feel like I, I sweat when I go to different events. It took me a very long time to become comfortable going to events and talking to people. 
And I still get very nervous when um, I have to speak in front of people um, or even go to those events where I don't know as many people. Mm-hmm. I would Same. just say, yeah, I, when I first started out, I would make myself meet two people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it would just be one. I would make myself meet one person or two people. And once I did that, I didn't have to talk to anybody else. I gave myself the freedom to say, I don't have to talk to anybody else. I don't know the rest of the time that I'm here. I've yes. met my quota, my, yes. my, you know, yes. my quota for, for the networking event. But go to those networking events, put a quota on yourself, walk away with those business cards, follow up with those people afterwards just by saying, thank you for talking to me or I enjoyed the conversation and put something specific within that email to help them remember you um and then that way next time you go to an event and see them you can speak to them and they may introduce you to someone else that's there and that's how you continue to build and grow your network so i think that's my real advice you may not see it in your field or more specifically your office so you're going to have to go outside of your office and find that group but finding that group is what is going to keep you excited keep you motivated keep you sane uh within this industry oh my gosh all of that (laughs) because (laughs) you just hit that right on the head because yeah without you melissa marina like that established group that we have of just other black women in the architecture profession yeah sanity would have been long gone (laughs) and so being able (laughs) to you know i i appreciate our group text and being able to bounce ideas off each other like it's Everything April just said, I co-sign on all of that. Well, I'm glad you agree. I'm glad yes. you, and I'm glad you're in my group. I'm glad right. you're in my circle. <laughs> agreed, agreed. Well, that concludes another episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling the inclusive history. Musical selections that you heard throughout the episode are from Sarah Gilberg's album, Other People's Secrets, which is available on Amazon and just about everywhere music is sold. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects, you got anything, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. (laughs) Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris Owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real 
to this day, I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.